This episode of the Good Pop Culture Club is brought to you by the Ma E Theater Company of New York and their newest production of Once Upon a Korean Time, written by Daniel K. Isaac. Now, we here at Good Pop are big fans of all sorts of pop culture, uh, books, TV, movies, uh, and that also includes theater. Uh, the Ma E Theater Company is a professional, award winning nonprofit 501c3 organization founded in 1989, whose primary mission is to develop and produce new and innovative plays by Asian American writers. Since its founding, Ma E has distinguished itself as one of the country's leading incubators of new works, shaping local and national conversations about what it means to be Asian American today. Day. Their latest play, Once Upon a Korean Time, mixes traditional Korean fables with the horrors of the Korean War. Daniel K. Isaac's epic new play is a funny and deeply moving analog for the experiences of the Korean American diaspora. Isaac deftly moves his characters through time, tracing the legacies of trauma that are passed on from one generation to the next, and the various coping mechanisms each one uses to soldier on. The show promises sea kings, bubbles, tigers, generational traumas, and of course, barbecue. Previews begin on August 23rd at La Mama's Ellen Stewart Theater in New York City, and the show will have a limited run through September 18th. So if you are lucky enough to be in the New York area, or if you're planning to take a trip out there over the next month, um, definitely check it out. Um, tickets are available now at maitheater.org. Um, that's M-A-Y-I-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org. And just for good pop listeners, you can get discounted tickets at $30 by using our exclusive discount code GOODPOP. Um, that's GOODPOP, all caps. And now, the show. You're listening to... Whoa! Hot luck. And what is poppin', everybody? You're listening to episode 116 of the Good Pop Culture Club. My name is Marvin Yue, and joining me, as always, to talk about all the good pop that gets us through our days, we have... The most professional of culture editors, Han Wynn. Hey, hey. How are you doing? It's just me and you again this week. <laughs> I know. Just Some people are still traveling. Vacation. Must be nice to not be working. She's she's just traveling for all of us at this point. I, I mean, look, she travels to Europe uh, and now to India. She doesn't get COVID. I go to one little Hallmark party last week and I brush up with someone who gets COVID. Oh no. um, Did you get it? I think I've uh, dodged it yet again. Mm. Just just like what we did with dim sum. So (laughs) that's really good because yeah, this was literally like... I mean, just did get COVID and almost gave it to us, which is why I think she's been so reckless because she's young and she's immune now maybe. Well, except... People with BA5 variant, um, you can actually get it again. So, well, don't tell her that. <laughs> I mean, you know, so anyway, she might be partially, you know, immune. Who knows? She's young. Um, we'll bounce yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. Yes. Anyways, um, I guess we had to do this since you're in the middle of press week, press tour. But, uh, how's, how are you doing? Hang in there? Yeah. So, because of the weirdness of, switching to virtual you know i think i've mentioned this before that uh there are going to be some we're well what we tried to do is have several weeks in a row like all consecutive but because it was in person then switched to virtual now things are in disarray so actually this week is no press tour next week is no no press tour uh well except for one day and then in september i have a few spotty days here and there so yeah it's it's I'm I relaxing, guess, uh, 
ish. <laughs> I guess that works out. I mean, you know, it's been pretty chaotic in TV world lately yeah. um, with the big merger. And apparently, yeah, I heard about a couple of shows that got pretty much canceled the day they were supposed to premiere. Yeah, um, I haven't really gone into it, but. Um, so back when I think it was April when Discovery bought out Warner Brothers, so that includes Warner Media. Mm-hmm. And for anyone who doesn't exactly know what Warner Media is, it's like HBO T- Turner and a bunch of stuff. So whatever is on your HBO Max, that's kind of what Warner Media is. Yeah, and HBO and, includes Showtime and Cinemax now too, right? Well, not really. Those are different. Cinemax. Yes, but Cinemax has been going away. So certain Cinemax shows, like let's say Warrior, is now part of that umbrella. Mm. Showtime is something totally different. Showtime belongs to Paramount um, networks and stuff like that. So oh. uh, yeah, it's under that. That's a totally different thing. So, but yeah, I hear um, Paramount Plus is also going away soon because they just got merged with someone else, right? Right, and so this is kind of like why everyone, same deal, like if someone buys out your company, you start getting nervous because you know there's going to be redundancies and jobs lost and stuff like that. So that's what's happening when it comes to the now uh, newly dubbed Warner Brothers Discovery. (laughs) Uh, WBD. Or is it Warner Media Discovery? WMD. I think that's WMD is a terrible, <laughs> terrible acronym. They should not do that. I um, think that's what it is. But yes, exactly. Like whatever it is, I can't oh. remember. I should know better. I would double check that. But yeah, um, it's yeah. I remember it's not great. when. I, so when I first my first job out of college was at Sony Pictures, and I entered right after they had bought MGM. And so mm-hmm. what people may not realize if they never worked for a big company that's part of a merger is it's not just two companies coming together. It's like two companies fighting it out to see who will dominate the new company. It's like Game of Thrones, pretty much. But then every yeah. single department has its own battle royale. So yes. my de- in my department, Sony won. But the other departments that I work with, mm-hmm. MGM won. And so there was this tension between all of our teams. Yeah. Just bad times. Yeah. So anyway, I double-checked. It is W. BD, because I guess they did realize WMD was a bad idea. So it's W Warner Brothers Discovery. Anyway, so that meant for various reasons, there have been things canceled, things not airing, things not ever seeing the light of day because they are considered tax write-offs. So like um, if you happen to be a, a fan of that weird little TBS show called Chad, starring Nassim Padrad playing a teenage boy, um, the second season was going to premiere. And then all of a sudden, yoinks, you know, that went away. Um, Samantha B, uh, full frontal with Samantha B, yoinks. That was a t- another TBS. Yeah, there is show. a disturbing correlation between many of the projects that were yanked. And yeah, uh, basically <laughs> people of color, women, uh, things like that. So the biggest one that everyone really paid attention to was Batgirl. Um, and the fact that it was fully shot has A-list talent. We're not even just talking Leslie Grace, who, you know, was in, uh, you know, a Broadway star who was also in, in the Heights. Uh, we're talking Brendan Fraser. <laughs> you know, like he was in this movie and I was excited to see that. And Michael and Keaton, right? He was, this was where he yeah, was going to make his Batman comeback. It, th- th- yeah. This is like actually big 
name talent and um, it got yanked. And um, there's been various reasons that they've tried to discuss like, oh, we don't believe in premiering, you know, feature length films on on streaming, it should be theatrical. Then I'm like, why don't you just release it theatrically? Um, I know there's like, that's not an easy thing to do just to switch from one to another. But at the same time, it did feel like, oh yeah, you're making every excuse in the world for this thing that's already shot. It's and like ultimately very expensive. Like I'm sure they can make the business case for like, oh, we're ultimately saving money for the shareholders or whatever, but it's such a shitty thing to do, right? Like, Hundreds of people worked on this film, and uh, mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of like, you can say, "Oh, they got experience," but if the show, if the film never airs or premieres or yeah. plays, you don't get credit for that. Like, you don't right. You don't get yeah. your your credit. You don't get residuals. You don't get any of that. And also, you know, the the strength of something means that you can possibly get work after that because you can point to that. So. Yeah. yeah, it it sucks kind re- of all around. I read that. So another film that got yanked is the Scooby-Doo movie. I think it was called yes. Scoob. And I read yes. that the director still went to the scoring session because they had already paid for it and scored yeah. his movie that was never going to see the light of day. Which makes no sense. That should absolutely 100% be something that should be on streaming because all of the parents need their kids to have a new movie to watch so or a new whatever to watch so i'm just like uh <laughs> this is made for streaming it's not even an argument so anyway a lot of that was happening and there's there's been talk you know one way or another about like hbo max you know uh originals maybe possibly going away but um you know but it's i think we still need to wait and see. I think um, yeah. a lot of them will probably be safe enough, but maybe not your favorite little one. So, like, I'm still worried about things like Starstruck, which was, you know, uh, a co-pro. Um, and and those little ones that I find really kind of, like, you know, speak to me, but aren't the big names. Um, I, I mean, mean, there's I lots guess of good stuff there. I mean, um, yeah. Our Flag Means Death is HBO Max original. Yeah. Um, Gordita Chronicles. Um, there's lots of I know. I mean, okay, like you, we're you not know, here to you, talk about the. We're, this episode is not about <laughs> contrary to appearances, the Warner Discovery merger. But it's just it's such. Yeah. We know so many people that were working on projects connected to HBO, HBO Max, and they're all just like, "What's going on right now?" Because it's the yeah. scariest part of a merger is like there's going to be a headcount, and you don't know if you're going to be part of that headcount, and. Not only that, but just the fact that, like, by all accounts, the signals that the new CEO has been sending out, um, this guy, what, David Zaslav, yeah, yeah, has been nothing but red flags, right? Right. Um, he also believes, clearly from, you know, Discovery, um, believes strongly in um, unscripted programming, which is totally fine. But, the, uh, but to have, like, the there's been sort of, like, possible buzz about, you know, emphasizing unscripted in the new streaming service, whatever it's going to be called, because HBO Max is probably in in the current incarnation that you know is not going to exist. Um, it's going to emphasize a lot of the Discovery Plus stuff and um, other other unscripted stuff. So anyway, yes. Yeah. Like, there, like it, it literally made no sense for Discovery to buy WarnerMedia when you look at the two, you know... <laughs> Uh, very incongruous companies, and I mean, so yeah. something's gonna give. I think it. I mean, that's not even to go into the whole point that like Warner has been like tossed around 
for the last decade, right? Like AT&T yeah. jumped through so many hoops to buy it mm-hmm. and immediately wanted to sell it because they realized, huh, we l- actually lose more money owning the content than actually, you know, just yeah. putting it on our pipes. I mean, there's also no one remembers this, but there was a streaming service called CNN Plus for a hot minute. <laughs> it, it lasted literally less time than um, Quibi did. Um, I think it lasted less than a week because I think we actually did an interview with someone on that. Uh, we wrote a listicle for them. And then like maybe that same week they got yanked. <laughs> so I was just like, <laughs> wow, interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, so- I get it. Everyone's trying to get a piece of streaming. But then, you know, Netflix released its earnings report last quarter and everyone decided, crap, if Netflix can't make it work, what the hell are we doing? Because everyone's just like freaking out yeah well i mean i think a lot of people yes and no like yes they lost a lot but a lot of people need to remember what we were in two years ago at the beginning of pandemic where everybody subscribed to everything right um because literally we were too scared to go out and and so all (laughs) we did was watch so that also meant as a online purveyor of stories about tv and movies i was doing great the story, the numbers and the readership was really high because everyone was watching TV and then going online to read about you know TV. Um, now, uh, it's a lot harder to figure out what people are, are watching, but also what they even care about engaging with. Um, yeah. People are watching more movies in theaters. And because of that, like there's, yeah, there's, they're spending less time at home binging things around the clock. So it, yeah. it's kind of expected. Yeah, it's just whenever something like this happens, like as a former business person, I can see the reasons why. And they all just suck because there's got to be another like I know the reason you do a business to make money. But as a creative business, that can't be your only reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm all I have to say is I'm exhausted. Like (laughs) stop with the peak TV. Can we have the peak go down now? Uh, and and just be reasonable. So that being said, though, there's still tons of peak TV, and I'm really excited. I still haven't dug into Sandman. I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. to get into that. Um, we're talking about Prey, which probably should have been a theatrical release if you really, really uh, think about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can talk more about that <laughs> once we get there. Um, so. And other stuff. So okay, so we're talking about Prey, the new Predator movie. But before we get to that, um, let's put a pin in our business news segment <laughs> and uh, let's talk about what pop culture has been getting us through the week uh han what is popping um so i watched a ton of tv including prey this weekend um but some of it's coming up so i'm going to s- save those uh something that just premiered this last weekend which a lot of people may have started checking out or maybe might be curious about checking out is the uh amazon series a league of their own Um, so it is a TV series that is inspired by loosely based on the 1992 Penny Marshall film. Um, if you recall, it it was, uh, let's see, a 1940s, 1950s sort of set, um, uh, movies about a women's baseball league. And, um, it starred Gina Davis, Madonna, Lori Petty, and a bunch of other people, um, but uh, uh, Tom Hanks, too. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, Tom <laughs> Hanks was in it. This, I remember it having a very star-studded cast, even though I personally have never seen it. 
You know what? I saw it and promptly forgot it. Of course, everyone knows that line. There's no crying in baseball. Um, and I think I, I remember just maybe reluctantly seeing it because I think even back then, I kind of understood that if you had an all women's sort of thing, it wasn't necessarily feminist. It would just uh, sort of like reinforce certain <laughs> stereotypes um, and maybe be insulting to women too. So I I don't have the same affection that a lot of other people do with that film, even though I do like Penny Marshall. And I, I seem to recall it being totally fine. You know, it, it didn't offend me in any way. I just remember not just being in love with it. Um, so this series is um, much different, and I will tell you how and why, um, but it is co-created by uh, Will Graham. He did, um, he was showrunner of Mozart in the Jungle, which actually I, I quite like. That's another Amazon series. But then also, Abby Jacobson, um, a one of the co-stars, co-creators of Broad City. And um, if anyone followed her work on Broad City, they realized that her character um, sort of echoed her in real life as far as kinding understanding that she is bisexual. Um, and so this league of their own is hella queer, like super, 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 super gay, queer, everything. I feel like as it should be, right? <laughs> yeah, as it should be. And also this is not just a complete fantasy but um they did actually you know do some research and talk to someone who was in those leagues or at least there was based on something so there's some evidence definitely that in the league there were plenty of uh queer queer friendly type people who um who they now they sort of created fake characters around so fictionalized characters around um there is also a black woman who um, wants to play. And even though the Negro leagues, I believe, were not integrated until after the period. So this TV show is set in 1943. Uh, Negro leagues didn't start until, like I think, four years later. Definitely not with women. Um, so they do... The one thing I do have to say about that is the one girl who is... Uh, one woman who's black named Max does not get to play with these <laughs> women. Um <laughs> So she has her own sort of baseball queer journey that runs parallel. And honestly, it's her and her best friend named Clance, who I think are wonderful. Clance is a black woman who draws comic books, you know, and comic art. And she is delightful. Their dynamic is wonderful. Um, And they get to work in a factory because it's also it's wartime. So it's the idea that the women um, during wartime, while all these men are getting conscripted, um, they are doing their part either by being Rosie the Riveter types or playing in these baseball leagues as part of uh, sort of morale builders, right? Because the guys can't play baseball. Um, They're, they're all, if they're able-bodied, they're, you know, overseas. And, um, but there's also a question of gender um, and gender presentation. So they, you know, and they're like, oh no, you need to be very super feminine. And these are like, you know, women who like, like to spit, you know, and some of them are very butchy gay um, and all that type of stuff. So that there's a lot of discussion about like what is feminine, um, a lot of underground, you know, like um, there's uh, let's see Rosie. This is not a spoiler. <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell ends up being the proprietor of a speakeasy that's uh, that's queer friendly. Oh, she's um, 
She was she in make, the original film too, right? Exactly. Yeah. But she does. Uh, so that's just sort of like a little nod to the original film. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's cool. And um, and so, yes, there's a lot of queer storylines. So Abby Jacobson is the lead uh, since it's her show. She plays a person named Carson who is married to a guy who's overseas. And she kind of realized that she's really attracted to this other ball player played <laughs> by Darcy Carden, who is from um, the... Uh, the good place. So anyway, I don't want to go too much into it, but it's it is fairly enjoyable. Um, if you are a diehard baseball fan, you might be disappointed because all my friends who are baseball fans say they're crap. Uh, <laughs> the baseball scenes. I as an you know not a, um, a this fan. Was your, this I don't has care. been your complaint about soccer um, shows. Ex- exactly. <laughs> um, they do play up the baseball in ways that I think lunch the storyline though which i don't say like ted lasso does not have good soccer as far as <laughs> it doesn't matter to the story whereas this one it kind of does because they want to make it to the playoffs mm. um so you do follow that along so if you know nothing about baseball you might actually enjoy this because that gives you that sort of like sports itch is scratched um as far as the underdog team goes um but yeah, it's, since it's also set in the 1940s, there's a lot of great uh, costuming. There are references to things of the time, like The Wizard of Oz, um, where, which they go see, and all that good stuff. But anyway, it's only, I think, eight episodes. So it's worth you know checking out. If, if you like it after the first episode or two, then it's probably good for you um, if you don't care about baseball. <laughs> so Yeah. That's mine. Um, that's my weekend. So what about you, Marvin? What were, what's popping for you? Oh, hon, I fucked up. Um, <laughs> so I think I've told you before that during the pandemic, I went on a Kickstarter spree, um, crowdfunding a ton of board games. And so they've started arriving. <laughs> and what? so... I haven't been able to get together like a friend group to do a game night, but some of these games have solo modes that you can play by yourself, kind of like solitaire. And so um, I have this game called Villagers that's pretty cool. It's like a tableau building game. Like the point of the game is you're drafting villagers to build out your village. And, it you know, there's a lot of like sequencing. And so you start with Lumberjack and Lumberjack becomes a carpenter and the carpenter can build houses, right? And so... The point of the game is to build your village so that you have the most amount of money or points by the end of the game. And so to try to learn the solo game, I went on to YouTube and watched some like Let's Plays of the solo game, which led me to watching Let's Plays of other games that I don't own yet, (laughs) which led me to buying other games that I don't own yet. So now I have at least two new games coming my way within the next week. Still no friend group to play with, Um, but... Yeah, so if anyone wants to do a game night, I have like 10 games I haven't played yet, so. It depends on what the games are. Are they all the same genre or like, mm, tell me. I mean, not all of them. I have a game called Rival Restaurants, which is more of like a worker placement, like Ooh. resource collecting game. I have Villagers, which is about, you know, drafting and like laying out cards. I have a couple more like strategic games. I have one that's basically, um, it's a political simulation and so you you play as politicians trying to win an election by answering <laughs> questions in a political way and also gerrymandering. <laughs> so, oh my god, uh, no, I don't want to play that one for sure. Uh, There's a really cool game called Root that I really like. It's um it's basically you play as different factions of animal 
like oh. critters um, living mm-hmm. in this like forest kingdom. One of them is the Marquis the Cat, who is the tyrant who is trying to maintain his iron grip on the forest kingdom. Um, there is a Wooden Alliance, which is a group of revolutionaries who are trying to overthrow uh, the government. There's a team of bird people who are kind of more militaristic and were the former rulers of the Forest Kingdom before the cat came and took them over. And then you have like a vagabond who is just going around just causing chaos. And so what's cool about this game is like each player is trying to collect victory points to win, but each player has a different way to collect victory points. So it's asymmetrical. So everybody's kind of playing their, their own game um, while interacting with each other. And it actually makes for a pretty cool gameplay loop. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, uh, Han, you want to play board games with me? I, you know what? I would consider it. I gotta admit that all the politically tinged ones, I'm not really into. I think anything where it requires me to actually want to get ahead in some way, like Monopoly, I don't give a shit about. I realize <laughs> that I have no competitive streak in that way. Um, okay, so I, you want to play chill games? So I think Villagers yeah. would be a good one for you. I, yeah, you know, I am actually interested though because since I haven't played board games in forever i am intrigued by what's out there um i also have some choice um one of the games i'm getting is actually a hidden identity game which is kind of like uh it's like mafia slash werewolf but with more like kind of more strategic i've been wanting to play werewolf and i hadn't um i was trying to get that from a buy nothing group and they didn't pick (laughs) um yeah how good are you at lying through your teeth (laughs) very good okay then we'll have a lot of fun (laughs) Yeah, I, I am very much into lying when it's, uh, you know, white lies I'm really good at. And then also <laughs> when it doesn't matter, you know, mm. um, uh, I don't know if it's if it really, really matters. Maybe I would be good. I always thought I might be a, a good like um, spy in that way. You know, <laughs> like I just have to convince myself it's true. Well, we'll see. Um, I guess the moral of the story is mm-hmm. um, be especially if like if you are someone who is um, who loves gaming, especially playing board games. Watch out for board game YouTube because they will sell you some games. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I've been trying to stay away from YouTube for sure, because I do understand that hobbyist sort of, YouTube is a very dangerous place to be, especially yeah. if you're like prone to those hobbies, because yeah. there's new stuff coming out all the time. They all look so cool. And I mean, I have no regrets. I'm going to eventually play these games that I buy. I'm just, you know, mm-hmm. I just I can't. I, can't, I don't have enough room in my house anymore. <laughs> This may sound like antithetical to the experience, but like, is there a, a board game that's really quick to play? <laughs> oh, there's there's a bunch. Um, to sort I mean, of ease me in? I don't know. I feel like most of the games I have takes about minimum 30 minutes, which is pretty okay. quick, I think. Because I think what I would like is to do that and just have a meal while doing it. Like, oh. you know, obviously, obviously not getting I mean, dirty, a good board but, game night, you have snacks, you have drinks. Yeah. You know, last time we bought like two cases of White Claw that we went through. It's a pretty good night. <laughs> Not selling it. All right, I, I will consider. We'll we'll right. look at your catalog. But still, a good pop game night when when Jess comes back from yeah. vacation. Yeah, that'll be good. All right. Well, going from board games to the most dangerous game this week, we're talking about the new film Prey, the fifth film in the Predator franchise. So stick around. Hi, I'm Shinyi Pai, host of the podcast Blue Suit. In a world full of stuff, what do we choose to hold on to? 
The Blue Suit is a podcast about commonplace objects and the people who transform them into something remarkable. From an inherited Chinese English dictionary to an old caliphone playing records left behind by Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II, our podcast showcases modern day artifacts of Asian America and what gets elevated to heirloom status. Find it by searching for The Blue Suit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Brian, did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. On this episode, we're talking about Prey, um, the new film that's playing now on Hulu, directed by Dan Trachtenberg, starring Amber Midthunder and Dakota Beavers. Um, Han, did you know when you first heard of this film that this was a Predator movie? Because I did not until like un- until I started like seeing people talk about it. Oh, yeah. So I did know, but I kept forgetting <laughs> because... The, the title Prey and then the imagery was mainly of Amber Midthunder's face um, for a lot of these things. And I have been notoriously staying away from all trailers for most things these days. And um, just because, you know, it, I like some surprises. And um, but yeah, I, I I whenever then I would get closer to watching Prey, I'd be like, oh, yeah predator movie oh yeah like i knew it was (laughs) about native americans i knew it took place in like the 1700s i figured it was like something like um the bear movie right the leonardo dicaprio bear movie (laughs) um (laughs) sure revenant was that what it was called revenant Um, yes it didn't click until well i mean i got spoiled by people talking about it and i was like oh it's, it's not the predator it's the prey I got yes, it. exactly. What brilliant wordplay. Yes. Very <laughs> clever word pre- word pray? Word play. <laughs> nicely um, done, nicely done. Yes. Um, so yeah, Prey is, like I mentioned, the fifth installment in the Predator franchise, which is interesting. I guess, I guess that doesn't count the Predator versus Alien movies, right? I, you know, yeah, I, I was thinking about that and I was like, then I would, if you count that, would you also consider the Alien movies as part of the bigger universe of that? So, yeah, I was like, yeah. They've been trying to make that happen for a long time. <laughs> it, it, it depends. I think it depends on who you are. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so it should be maybe fourth, fifth. <laughs> it's it's the fifth, like, main line mm-hmm. of this Predator movie. Um, this mm-hmm. one takes place in 1719 on the North American Great Plains. Um, it stars Amber Midthunder as Naru, who is a Comanche a woman who wants to be a hunter like her father and brother, but is constantly looked down on for being a woman. As she goes on a hunt to try to prove herself, it coincides with the arrival of an alien predator <laughs> who begins its hunt uh, for um, other predators. So um, I guess first off, like how familiar were you or are you with the Predator franchise? Um, not very well. Uh, oddly enough, I definitely watched the movie when it first came out. I've probably seen it twice. Um, but, you know, I just didn't pay attention to much of any. I don't think I watched any of the follow-up movies. And so I barely remembered, 
like all I know is Predator was some uh, alien. I I recognize the sound um, <laughs> that he makes. It makes and um and I remember like the invisibility. That's kind of all I remember. So when I had heard about Prey and realized what was happening, I was like, oh. So I was like, I guess the Predator has been on Earth for a while. Like, <laughs> yeah. So the Predator is an interesting franchise because it starts like the first movie was pretty simple. It's, you know, oh, it, a group of commandos going to Vietnam on like a on a rescue mission. I think it's rescue mission or a seek and destroy mission and end up being hunted by an alien hunter. And it's a pretty interesting concept, which is what if monster smart? What if this was a monster film, but the monster is as intelligent or more intelligent than the humans? Um, which is kind of, it's a scary concept, right? Because, you know, um, before The Predator, you know, when you had monster movies, they were all kind of feral. They were all kind of, you know, just like berserkers. But now you have one that will sneak around, lay traps, use bait. And, you know, it was one of those movies that it was like a star vehicle for uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's filled with like cool buff guys doing cool buff guy stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it was enjoyable. It was perfect <laughs> for the time. Yeah. <laughs> and then Predator 2, instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you have Danny Glover as the um, the main character. And that one was more like, you know, um, using his wits to defeat the Predator. And then in every subsequent Predator movie, you start to see the MCUification of mm-hmm. the franchise, which is they want to start filling in backstory. Who are the Predators? Why are they here? Filling the world. And I don't know if it lost a thread somewhere, but it definitely became more and more convoluted as it went, which yeah. is why I was super happy to see this film goes back to its roots, which is you have a group of humans being hunted by a predator and that's it. That's the film. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, you can see that this is sort of like an earlier predator um, because f- especially as far as the franchise has gotten that certain uh, of his, I guess, weapons are sort of like almost rudimentary compared to the uh, the later ones. Obviously, they're still lasers. He's still an alien who, you know, clearly made it to Earth. But yeah, it, they're they're just different things. So it, I felt like it scaled it down enough for me to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, gotcha. I think. I mean, the lower reason for that would be that so the predators are a alien race of, I guess, hunters, and their whole thing is they get sent on these hunting missions as like as rites of passage and so they have to go to a planet and collect trophies like collect trophy like basically trophy skulls of the most dangerous predators in that planet and it gives them prestige in their tribes supposedly i only know the deep lore but that's kind of like they're supposed to be an honorable alien race and so you know they have hints of that from the first movie throughout which is they don't they never attack anyone who's unarmed and who or who is not deemed a threat um, which, you know, comes to play in this film a lot. And so I imagine, you know, the different hunters, like they're, they're not all given the same stuff. Like they all have their own personal like preferences on weaponry. So it just so happens in my head canon, at least, this specific predator that comes in the 1700s is a dude who just loves to get down and dirty, right? He loves stabbing people. He loves using mm-hmm. like well, pr- uh, ballistic projectiles instead of like laser cannons. Uh, which yeah. makes sense as well. And it makes for like, you know, it makes for cooler, you know, this guy was definitely way more vicious than the other predators that we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 
when you're when we start understanding like you know if you're going back to predator 101 <laughs> as you were saying like he only like likes to try and um, take down other predators so it's kind of i don't want to say cool but kind of cool to see him working that out when it comes to the various animals on our planet and of course the ultimate predator is man so of course that's why the predator is going to go after us <laughs> but um uh, what I thought was somewhat interesting was the slight parallel that they were making to um, a rite of passage that um, some of the Comanche were doing, which was something like Kutamiya. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they explain it for, um, they explain it in the beginning, which is it's a rite of passage for hunters. And yeah. to do it, you have to go hunt a predator. Right? Yeah. You hunt something so- that hunts you, which is, I mean, it's a little <laughs> on the nose for the film, but I, I, I had a good chuckle. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so I see what you're doing here. <laughs> yeah. And so the ultimate one, you know, like everyone's like, well, you got to go get that lion. And so, you know, mountain lion out there. Um, and, you know, Amber Mid Thunder, Naru, what is her, <laughs> her critter? Well, it turns out it's going to be the predator. So um, it, it was an interesting thing because you see the echoes of how hopefully things will play out when her brother. Uh, does you know take down a mountain lion at some point so you see him like smear the blood on himself so you're kind of just waiting for whenever (laughs) she hopefully you know wins because you're expecting that predator blood there's just a lot of stuff in there that's kind of like yes it's on the nose but at the same time i very much appreciated it yeah i mean Uh, dad treckenberg his last film was 10 cloverfield lane which was also a really really well done mm -hmm. sequel to like a film to a much beloved film and even that was like a it was the tone was a departure because that one goes into like toxic masculinity and you know also features a strong strong female lead and i think you know he does a good job kind of painting her as someone who is rebelling against gender roles right because you know even in um comanche culture back then you know you can see that the generals are delineated, right? Women wake up earlier than the men. They go on forge in the morning. Like all that storytelling is done really well in the background. Like yeah, yeah. Like even her mother is uh, a healer, so Naru is also a healer, and um, she's also preparing hides. Everything she's doing is around the camp, and um, and it's all the dudes who are going out every time you know her hunting. Uh, <laughs> this is not to say, of course, that you know just because the women are supposed to only do certain jobs, perhaps, um, that they can't do other ones because clearly, you know, you're still living off the land. You you have skills. <laughs> so um, it's just whether or not, like, you go and try to figure out, like, all the other things. So it uh, turns out she's great at tracking, too. Yeah. Um, and, she, and, and she's smart. And throwing tomahawks. She's Real smart and she has, <laughs> she has hand-eye coordination. Uh, and let me just say, as someone who has done both the axe-throwing and knife-throwing uh, activities, I suck at those. So th- <laughs> it's hard um, to kind of get that sort of balance right and be able to throw it with just the right amount of, uh, I don't know, distance and flick <laughs> for it to hit with the blade at the, the target that you want. Most of the time, you're just gonna like end up like it falling. So, um, I I really appreciated that, and I was like, I need to look up other stories to see whether or not she was actually like well trained or if that was CGI. Because <laughs> I would love <laughs> it if true. I yeah yeah. I That's mean, true. it's a it's a great movie, but of course there are certain things that are CGI. So I was like, please, I hope not. Um, I mean, 
one thing that definitely was not CGI was the scenery. I mean, this was yes. shot on location in Calgary, Alberta, which is up in um, which is which is up in Canada, um, and. I think, I don't know, just something about seeing actual location shots after watching so many, like, because everything on Disney Plus is on green screen, you know? Yeah. It yeah. just looks so good. It was also just really relaxing. Like, um, and it felt right because, like, if you're going to talk about, you know, native, native indigenous people, of course, the land is super important. And the relationship to the land when, especially when you're talking about invaders. Uh, so <laughs> so I was very happy to see so much of the land and also her relationship with it. Because it's like she clearly, like, it was it was just nice to see her go out and just, like, walk over, along all these places and not, like, be worried, like, oh, I need to figure out where I'm going and so I can trace my footsteps back. Like, no, she knows. <laughs> so... Um, also not CGI is the dog. Which... Oh, what a good boy! I was <laughs> the moment I saw that good boy. I was I would turn into that Rosa Diaz like memes like no one better touch this dog or I'll murder everybody. <laughs> yeah. So the dog apparently is based on some sort of like Carolina dog, uh, which supposedly it's something very similar to a Carolina dog is what would have been present during the 1700s. So. Um, Obviously, dogs have been domesticated for a long time by humans, so that relationship is actually not unheard of. Um, this particular dog had a very good, expressive face, um, <laughs> and I adored the dog. Also, I then ate up every story about the dog I could read online, so here's what I will tell you <laughs> that I learned. Um dog's name was Coco. She was uh, adopted just for the movie. And uh, I, I think someone, you know, ended up getting her. But um, the thing is, so she was not a professional actor dog. So she was also super excited every single time to be in the shot. <laughs> Sometimes she wasn't <laughs> supposed to be in the shot. Uh, There's also like a lot of um, tension about like whether or not she'll hit her mark. <laughs> Um, she was constantly wanting to be with people. Uh, they called her kind of like a hot mess. Uh, and the, you know, the, do the character dog's name is Sari. And, um, definitely whenever you see a dog, yes, you are very nervous. I was constantly, every time I saw that dog charge that predator, I was like, no dog, run away. Your <laughs> oh, master's yeah. not worth it. Same with, like, the bear. I'm just like, no, no. You can bark at a rabbit. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but, like, not a bear. Um, but, uh, yes. So you can always, if you want that to. That bear was definitely CGI, though. Oh, totally. And I'm fine <laughs> with that. Just like with um, RRR, I'm totally fine with the CGI animals in certain uh, circumstances. Um, but so if you want to know, because I'm not going to ruin it for you, you can go to Does the Dog Die? just to be sure um, whether or not you want to watch this movie or not. Because I know for some people that's actually a deal breaker. Um, so I won't spoil it, but like for some people who want to go in, you know, not knowing, then they can just watch. But uh, very good dog. Very, yeah. very, very good dog. Also something that I really loved is, you know, you mentioned about invaders. You, you alluded to invaders earlier. Yes, yes. And I thought it was just hilarious that in a film with an actual like alien hunter, uh, monster thingy, um, the biggest monsters were the white men. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I know a lot of people maybe technically know this, but I was just, 
I don't want to say happy that, you know, they were also, because it's the 1700s, they were featuring Frenchmen. Because, yes, also colonizers, um, <laughs> says the Vietnamese person. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, in America, like, hello, remember Louisiana Purchase and all that type of stuff. Um, but uh, so what was interesting was, for me, the use of a lot of, uh, I guess, non-English languages. So not only do we get Comanche um, we also get French. And what was interesting about that was they did not translate the French. <laughs> they gave us French subtitles. Yeah, because they did a little like Hunt for Red October thing where the Comanche was um, presented as English. And I did not know this, but there's actually a Comanche track on Hulu that you can Yeah, can so to. if if that's your thing, you can totally just switch to Comanche and the whole movie is overdubbed that way. Um, uh, Amber Midthunder did... Um, audition with Comanche also, um, which I was kind of excited to hear because, you know, you never know, like she's maybe perhaps one of the better known um, native actresses. So I didn't know whether or not like they just chose her. I loved her in like Legion. So, um, but yeah, it kind of like same with Warrior, you know, Um, there was that English um, sort of like you assume that they're actually speaking their language, but you understand it because it's in, in English sort of situation. Yeah, and uh, I, I like that they they didn't have to do much to characterize the Frenchmen as like absolute monsters um, because they show that one scene where you have the herd of buffalo who've just been skinned, oh. um, but nothing else um, because as we know, the colonizers only care about pelts, not the meat. They leave all the meat there to rot. Yeah, that I was just like... Wait a sec. When I yeah. when you go there and you're like, this is not predator behavior. Why yeah. would like? <laughs> I was like, at first I thought it was a predator. I was like, why would he do this? Yeah, because buffalo are not predators. So They're why would you predators. go after? And, and why would you just take skin? Yeah. yeah. And, and and then I realized, oh no, it's the white yeah. people that did this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was fascinating. There, there's also a character. I guess if you are deep into the predator lore, there is a character there who you know from other things, which was... Uh, uh, I think it was a comic, and, like, it was, like, yeah. a... It was a... There's a certain scene that happens at the end of Predator 2 mm-hmm. that, like, sets up that character from the comic. Mm-hmm. And what I love... The, and to be honest, you don't really need to know. Like, people who know, yeah. say, oh, it's, like, a cool Easter egg, but it's not story-specific at all. No. And that dude sucked anyway, so whatever. Well, it was interesting because I immediately like my spidey sense went tingling when he came on and I was like, he's somebody. So I had to go immediately in Google. <laughs> um, so I realized that there was a reason why they gave him a name, you know, um, yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, so that's an extra bonus thing. If you want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, what did you think about the action? Cause that's the crux of the Predator movie. Yeah. Um, I liked it because it was a lot of different types of action. Um, when we talk about the use of the scenery, um, there was it it definitely used it in quite a lot of ways, like let's say running across a plane or up in the trees. I am such a fan of the tree action. Yeah, and and what was really cool is that they do a lot of wide shots. Mm-hmm. And so because this is a story about the hunter and hunted, they do a lot of scenes where you have a lot of stalking. You have a lot of people in different, like, almost none of the fights are straight up, like, brawls. They're all, mm-hmm. like, someone sneaking up on someone else, someone running across the tree, someone, like, hiding as some, uh, someone hiding as the predator walks by them. 
And I think it really invoked that tension of the first film, which is literally a bunch of really strong action dudes being hunted. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, and then on the flip side, you do get some brawls, I think, um, some hand to hand sort of stuff going on. Amber Mid Thunder. I don't know if there was also a stunt person, but there's some really great what I would call like martial arts sort of <laughs> situation going on. But, you know, not technically. Um, but, yeah, so I think there was some decent fight choreography that I enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and let's and see for what fans of Predator films, don't worry, there is a third act Home Alone sequence. So Yeah. So like a almost kind of like a Rube Gold, Goldberg machine. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed that, too. Um, Also, uh, clearly there are some smarts that she has. Um, Her brother, Tabe, who uh, is a great warrior in the tribe, um, at some point acknowledges that, yes, he is a warrior, but she also, let's say, sees things that maybe he or the other people don't. And, um, And so it kind of, like, pays tribute to, yes, her smarts, um, but also the idea of, I think, um, as a woman, um, since you are sidelined, sometimes you end up being an observer and yeah. um, being able to put together certain ideas. So uh, I, I like that that played to her strengths in a way that made sense. And as a second lead, um, Dakota Beavers, who plays Tabe, her brother, did a really good job as well. I, I really I liked like- him. Oh, I really liked him. I definitely went and Googled him because I was like, wait, who, is, who are you? And why haven't I seen you in more things? So uh, I would love to see him in a ton more things. Um, it kind of, I have to say, after I watched Prey, I was like, oh, I need to see more natives. So I went back to watching uh, Reservation Dogs, which is now in yeah, the second season. Yeah, this has maybe put me over the edge. I'm like, I kind of want to see more indigenous content because I think... If I'd watched like this or um, or Rutherford Falls earlier, I probably would have come to the same conclusion, which is it is really cool to see indigenous centered content in like high budget like film. Yeah. Form, and, and, right. And, and things that are not tragedy. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah. So so because, yes, um, definitely centered content is still new for us. Right. In the past, like, two, three years, we're still getting more stuff that's more mainstream. Um, yeah. And, you know, similar to what we talk about, like, Asian representation, you know, indigenous representation is also super important because, like, the people, like, all the actors in this film have probably all played, like, mm-hmm. like random native person in, like, a lot of different genre or um, yeah. period pieces. but. You know, this is a film that puts them front and center, gives them speaking lines, lets them be badass. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, they take on a predator. Yeah, I like that this is a period piece. Um, It's kind of setting up, yes, uh, a native character who maybe feels more traditional for other people. But I do like kind of like with me, I hope it inspires people to check out the other native content, which is contemporary. So Mm. Rutherford Falls, Reservation Dogs, because a lot of people don't realize that Native people are still around, <laughs> uh, which is horrible to say, but it's true. Um, and uh, yeah, so it it was just, I don't know. It was just very, it was really exciting for me to see this. Um, I don't really like a lot of stories about old America for reasons. Uh, <laughs> this one yeah. was great. <laughs> it's great. If you don't think too hard about how, you know, within a generation or two, that tribe is doomed, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, give us one win. You know, that's great. Oh. Uh, so it, it was just also just a very enjoyable movie. When we when you talk about like action film, um, visual things and you were saying like this should have been in a theater. And honestly, yeah, I would have loved to have seen it. in Everything theater. in this film is so big. I was like, this would have been amazing to see on like a giant movie screen. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping maybe it inspires uh, the studio to maybe have some screenings in theaters, even if it's just like at Alamo Draft House or something. That um, would be nice. I mean, <laughs> not to bring this back to depressing business talk, mm-hmm. but if you think about it, the reasons that it did not get a theatrical release are pretty apparent. Mm-hmm. They had, they probably did not have, like whoever was crunching numbers probably did not have faith that a indigenous-led action film would do well in the box office which was like which turned out to be like not a good bet because this was like the most streamed film for like two whole weekends yeah and probably still ongoing because it's a badass film i this is one of those where i'm like i understand why the big studio was behind this as far as like producing it but i it's one of those where i wish like an a24 was responsible because they make sure that their films get into theaters and they get behind it so like I don't know if anyone realizes this, but like everything everywhere all at once was re-released in theaters <laughs> recently <laughs> because they believe in it so much. So like there was a time when I would tell my friends, yeah, see if it's in your local theater. If not, you can still rent it as like it's in both places. Um, and uh, I think it's so important for that and also for the studio to have that faith and realize like this works. This brings people, you know, puts button seats. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so as we wrap up our conversation on Prey, um, Han, is Prey good pop? Oh, it's great pop. Yes. Watch it, watch it. (laughs) I think so, too. I had a lot of fun watching the film. It reminded me of, I think it probably sits with me a little bit stronger than, like, the original Predator. Because the original Predator, I don't remember Mm -hmm. much. I just remember Arnold Schwarzenegger finding the Predator in a mud pit. And Mm -hmm. seeing his famous line, which is also included in this film, (laughs) if it can bleed... It can die. Yes. And you get a mud pit. Which I definitely did the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen <laughs> at that moment. Yeah, there's actually a lot of callbacks. So in a way, it almost made me want to watch the original Predator, but not quite. So <laughs> I would say if you are into that thing, watch the original Predator again, then watch Prey and you'll have a, like a doubly good time. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll do it for a discussion of Prey uh, streaming now on Hulu. Um, Han, if people want to find out more of your thoughts, where can they go? Um, I'm on Twitter at Hanonymous. And you can find me on Twitter at Marvin. You can find our show at Good Pop Club. Um, we are a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a network of Asian American hosted podcasts. Uh, you can check out our fellow Potluck Pods by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. We'll be back next week to talk about The Sandman, uh, which Han and I have agreed to watch this week. Um, I'm excited. I've heard a lot of good things about this series, and um, I mean Neil Gaiman approved this one, so hey, yeah, has to count for something. <laughs> all right, so we'll see y'all next time on Good Pop. Bye, everybody. Bye.
Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.